This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.28, Sparks Fly, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and I could hate the beautiful. And I'm Nina, wishing I could make a dramatic floaty exit, just like Mirai. <laughs> Best exit ever. New patron roundup. Big thanks go out to Vlad, Julia D, Anthony I, and Zachary P. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you for your support. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to us that you all support us and continue to support us on this crazy project. I'd also like to give special thank yous to at not an in on Twitter for helping us to spread the good word about Itano Ichiro. <laughs> and also a special thanks to at wants to be a panda who has an amazing blog with invaluable and unique translations of interviews with a variety of anime luminaries, including many of the people who worked on Gundam. I use it a lot and I recommend you check it out. We will have a link in the show notes. No, we won't because the link includes a spoiler. Oh. Nuts. But check out Et Wants to Be a Panda on Twitter. <laughs> we have good news and bad news about our contest. The bad news is that Mandeep never did get in contact with us. So we drew a new winner for the Yellow Haropla Prize. So this includes uh, Yellow Haropla, a copy of First Gundam, as well as some cool Gundam art, some stickers, and some MSP postcards. And our new winner is at Ensign B on Twitter. Ensign B, you are the winner. Congratulations. <laughs> we'll be getting in touch with you on Twitter uh, this week to get your shipping information and your t-shirt size. Last week, the white base arrived inside six, desperately in need of repairs that it would not be able to obtain after being informed that any repairs would count as aiding the war effort. It was revealed that Cameron Bloom, side six district attorney, was in fact Mirai's fiance, though he was determined to rekindle the romance. It seems that Mirai is only interested in men of action. It was also an episode of reunions with Amuro encountering his father, Tem Ray, in the streets by happenstance an encounter, a reunion, that would not play out the way young Amuro wanted. When the white base attempted to receive repairs at a floating dock outside of Side 6 territory, they were ambushed by the powerful Kanskan attack force and forced to retreat. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Episode 34, A Fateful Encounter, or Shukume no Deai, which I think just means a fateful encounter. We also researched red tape, neutral territories in World War II, and O'Neill cylinders. But first, the recap. Back on side six, the white base does what maintenance it can and waits for orders from the Tianem fleet. But side six wants them gone, and Xeon forces still wait just outside side six's boundaries. Shar takes his Zanzibar and heads to Side 6, leaving Kanskan behind. He tells his subordinate they need to retrieve a secret weapon. 
They arrive on side six without incident, greeted in much the same way the white base was, but the white base crew look across the port in horror. Overcome with anger and grief, Hayato moves to leave the ship before being stopped by his crewmates. The people responsible for Ryu's death are right there! He wants vengeance, regardless of the cost. Bright decides that no one is to leave the ship, and that once maintenance is done and Amuro has returned from his errand, they will leave. Amuro, out in one of the buggies, gets caught in a rainstorm and takes shelter in the porch of a nearby house. While there, he runs into a mysterious woman, who senses that a swan flying overhead is dying just before it crashes into the nearby pond. Amuro seems to hear her thoughts before she speaks. When the rain stops, she runs out into the sunshine, and Amuro continues on his way. He goes back to see his father, Tem Ray. All Tem can talk about is the Gundam. Did Amuro install the new part? Did it improve the Gundam? With a creepy laugh, Tem talks about how he will focus all his time and efforts on Gundam upgrades. In a flash, Amuro remembers the other times, long before the oxygen deprivation, that his father cared more about machines, about his own creations, than about human beings. Preoccupied and rushing back to the white base, Amuro gets his buggy stuck in a rut. He waves down another car driving by and gets hit by a splash of mud. The car pulls over. It's the mysterious woman from earlier, accompanied by a Xeon officer. The officer offers to help Amuro, and Amuro can't shake the feeling he knows this officer somehow. He learns that the woman's name is Lala, and the officer is none other than Shar. As soon as the buggy is free, Amuro rushes back to the white base, and Shar and Lala continue on their way. Cameron comes to the white base to offer himself and his private ship as an escort. If the white base is accompanied by a side six vessel, it may prevent Zeon from firing on them. Mirai is suspicious of his motives. He isn't going to win her over with grand gestures now. As they argue, the crew around them pretend not to be listening. Suddenly, Slegger slaps Mirai. Everyone looks up in shock. He yells first at Mirai. Can't she tell that Cameron is serious about wanting to help? Then at Cameron. How can he let Mirai speak to him that way? Bright breaks the tension slightly when he accepts Cameron's offer of help. Konskan launches his remaining Rickdoms, ordering them to attack and to hell with worrying about Side 6. Cameron's ship moves away but stays near enough to watch the battle and is soon joined by a TV crew broadcasting footage of the battle on TVs on the side. Tem watches, as do Lala and Shar. Tem watches the Gundam hungrily, cheering when it does well and crediting his own engineering skill with the Gundam's success. Shar admonishes Lala to watch the combat carefully. In battle, Amuro's perception and reaction times seem sharper than ever before. He destroys one Rickdom after another, dodging and weaving, and suddenly able to predict the enemy moves before they happen. With the Rickdoms destroyed, he looks at Konskan's flagship and identifies two weak points. Stabbing deep into the ship with his beam sabers, carefully targeting the weak points, he is able to destroy the ship single-handedly. The battle over, Cameron heads back to Side 6, waving goodbye to Mirai and hoping that she survives the war, and the white base continues on its way. After a lot of, uh, at first very subtle and then increasingly obvious hints over the past 30 some episodes, it's now very clear that some sort of weird psychic stuff is going on with Amuro. For the last couple of episodes, we've been getting these little sparks on his brow, especially during combat when he has some sort of intuitive moment. Uh, and at first it seemed like maybe it was just a, just a visual thing. At first it was so rare and so quick that you almost might not notice it. But now we get an episode that is very clear uh, that some psychic stuff is happening. But I was very pleased to see no exposition, no big, long explanations about what's going on, no 
dialogues between two characters where one is explaining to the other something that theoretically both of them already know. Uh, we just see it. And the closest thing to a discussion of it is when Bright says, wow, Amaro's intuition is really on point today. And at one point, Lala makes a comment about how Char is interested in her because she has good perception and can predict things. Oh, also we have a new character, Lala. Hi, Lala. Lala is a little strange. Yeah. I found her characterization very childlike. The way she notices that it stopped raining and runs out into the field and arms outstretched is just kind of running around, laughing, happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's very uninhibited. Just a lot of weird little laughs that feel just enough out of place to be a little uncomfortable. There's a knowing quality to some of her laughter, a kind of like, I know more than you do sort of laugh, but not in a mean-spirited way. Well, there's a juxtaposition of a sense of wisdom or knowledge Mm -hmm. versus a behavior and a presentation that can be very young. Mm -hmm. She's not drawn to look young. She looks like an adult woman. Her eyes are a little weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very weird. For anime eyes, they're very weird. Which, when I first saw them, I wondered if we were meant to think that she was blind. The combination of her eyes being drawn a little strangely and when Amuro first appears, she doesn't react to him until he's right next to her. Right. Which made me wonder if she couldn't actually see him she just like heard a sound near her once he was close enough and reacted. So I have a theory about that, which I'll say in a second. But when we say that her eyes are weird, we mean that the colored part, the iris, is very large and it has kind of a weird green color and no discernible pupil. Yeah, none. And none of the like highlights, none of the little white highlights that mm-hmm. are typical to anime eyes at all. Yeah, it's very flat. And in fact, Lala herself in those scenes when she first appears, Lala and Amuro both have have a kind of soft focus um, when they're in sort of one shots when it's just them on screen and that goes away when it's both of them and they're interacting but we get a lot of shots of their faces and they're uh, very expressive but they have this weird fuzzy filter overlaid on them and it could just be like that could be an animation quality thing. I just assumed that was a bit of poor animation <laughs> or or degraded prints or something but it also feels intentional in a way in the moment after he asks her about the swan so one she seems to realize that the swan is dying before there's any visual indication that the swan is dying, point one. Mm -hmm. When Amuro asks her about it, we hear her thoughts three times or four times almost. Mm -hmm. It's like three and a half. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that she hasn't spoken except the the sound has kind of a ethereal quality. It echoes a bit. And it happens several times over and the camera zooms out quite a bit Mm -hmm. during this moment. And then it zooms into her face and we see her mouth move and we see her her express the thought. Mm -hmm. So, so my one question about that scene is, is she deliberately sort of sending this thought at Amaro? Mm-hmm. Or is he without intending to picking up her thoughts before she speaks? It's an interesting question. We, one, we don't really have an answer to. Right. But I do like that you focused on this part of the scene because here's one of the bits that makes me think that soft focus versus clarity distinction in the animation is intentional because when Amuro is hearing her thoughts, soft focus. When she's actually speaking, clarity. And this, I think, actually continues throughout the rest of the scene, although less obviously because we don't have another moment where it's clear that he's hearing her thoughts rather than actually speaking to her. Mm-hmm. But when he first approaches and she gets startled. What I think is happening there is she sensed his presence 
psychically, mm-hmm. esperly. <laughs> but she's so accustomed to feeling people around her that she didn't realize that meant he was actually physically there. Mm. Like she knew he was there psychically, but his actual appearance in the flesh startles her. Mm. Well, and she can tell that he's an esper. Mm-hmm. From the moment they meet, she knows. Right. Though he doesn't know what that means. He doesn't He doesn't put it together because he doesn't know what an esper is. He doesn't know he is one. But Lala clearly is awakened to what she is. Yes. Well, and understands that that's why she came to Shar's attention. She understands that's why she's living the life that she's currently living. Mm-hmm. We have no idea how long ago she was found uh, and how long they've been keeping her under wraps, so to speak. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're wondering how we know that Lala knows that Amuro is also an Esper, just think about the scene when she drives past him on the road and splashes mud onto him. And afterwards she says, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you would dodge it. Well, and her and her utter confidence that Amuro will win the battle in mm-hmm. space. Uh, I think she knows more than she's saying when Shar says, gee, I wonder why that kid sped away so fast. Yeah. And she says, oh, he he must just know who you are. He must have heard the name Shar Aznavol before and he's mm-hmm. afraid of you. But she does it with a little smile and a tone that makes right. me think that when she says, oh, I'm sure of it, mm-hmm. that that to me made it clear that she, in fact, was sure it was not that. Right. Um. The final big question mark about her and the Esperism for me is when Amuro shows this really keen predictive ability uh-huh. uh, with the dramatic music and nobody can believe it. It's almost like he's predicting our moves. <laughs> like, well, then uh, he says, I can see what they're going to do next. Right. And he can see the two tiny weak points in a ship that if he attacks them, will make the whole ship explode. Mm-hmm. You know, is this the culmination of a slow unlocking of ability or was exposure to another strong esper triggering mm-hmm. in some way? Mm-hmm. And I kind of think it's the latter, that somehow being near Lala unlocked some of his ability. Yeah, I think there's a good chance that that's true. I mean, he's had a lot of very emotionally triggering moments while they've been visiting Side 6. Yes. So it's not necessarily just the Lala encounter. It could also be his encounter with his father. Some of the way the show is structured makes that feel kind of significant because when he's in the space battle after the news crew has arrived, and we'll talk about the news crew soon, but in the space battle after the news crew has arrived, he has this Esper Flash, right? And he he has a moment of intuition and there's an immediate, very sharp cut to Tem Ray's face in super close up staring at the TV screen. Of course, we don't see the TV screen because the camera is positioned right in it and we're just looking at Tem Ray's face straight on. And the juxtaposition of those two so close together suggests a connection. I don't see the connection there so much as in the visit. So I, for one, thought Amaro was never going to see his father again <laughs> after that last episode. I thought that mm-hmm. was it. End of relationship. But Amaro goes back. We see Amaro lie to his father out of a sense of kindness and pity. Mm-hmm. However, he has that moment where everything goes blue and where he is having what I assume is a memory. Mm-hmm. And it's a juxtaposition of his father from before and his father now. Mm-hmm. And while this is never explicitly stated, I believe this is Amaro realizing that his father's obsession, that his father's total inability to care about people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's an image of his father asleep at a desk. There's an image of his father during the evacuation of Side 7, more concerned with making sure the Gundam and the Gundam parts are not destroyed Mm -hmm. than with the evacuation or with any of the people involved. 
this is Amaro realizing that as much as he might want to think that the way his father currently is is because of the brain damage, his father was always an obsessive. Yeah, his father yeah. was always more concerned with machines than with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this felt like a flashback, especially the way it's triggered. His dad knocks some books off of the desk and they hit the floor and Amaro seeing the books hitting the floor causes him to flashback to these previous memories of his dad, you know, as you said, passed out at his desk working. And then the scene from the first episode where, you know, he goes to his dad while his dad is working on the Gundam. Um, and what's really interesting about that is it's not exactly the same as what happened in the first episode. It's an event that happened in the first episode, but the dialogue is different. Amuro says an additional thing, which is something about the the like shelter capsules. Right. Which he doesn't actually say in the first episode. He says like what use are shelter capsules anyway? And then he says the line from the first episode, which is, are mobile suits more important to you than people? So either there was some dialogue that got cut from the first episode or they re-recorded for this one. But the difference is odd and it feels like there must be something there, but I'm not sure what. It's possible that this is meant to hammer home for us that the Federation Research Facility knew that it was putting people at risk and did not take adequate precautions for the protection of the local population. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Titanic with not enough lifeboats. Like Mm -hmm. uh, that they knew that those capsules weren't going to be much good in most attacks, but it's uh, a way to calm people down and get them out of the way. Mm -hmm. And while this scene does not tie directly to any sense of Amaro's emerging esperism. What it is, is a very emotionally difficult growing up moment. Mm -hmm. That sense of, I have been mentally making excuses for the behavior of my parent. Now, instead of making those excuses, I am accepting that this is who they are, as flawed as that is, and as much as I find it hurtful and upsetting. And that's a moment of perception and understanding, which, as much as it's applied in different circumstances on the battlefield, is basically what Amuro's esperism has been manifesting it as. It's this perception of what is going on around him, real, unvarnished, and not susceptible to trickery, and an understanding of other people's motivations. And on the battlefield, that's what they're going to do next. But with his father, it's a more pure understanding of what has always motivated his dad. The final thing that I want to say about Tem uh, that we get as Tem is watching the TV broadcast of the battle just outside side six is that, and this feels very deliberate on the part of the writers, how easy it is for adults to take credit (laughs) for things that they have very little part in Mm -hmm. and how deluded it is, how delusional on Tem's part to assume that all of the Gundam's ability, all of the Gundam's success is because of him and his part in building it, and to completely elid, to completely remove Amuro from the equation. We have this brief moment of hope where he's like, yeah, Amuro. You did it, all thanks to me and my new improved Gundam upgrade part. Right. And that that's a very clear moment of adults are the enemy. <laughs> like we get yeah. those we get those pretty frequently, but uh, this is one of the more uh, straightforward and unvarnished ones. This is just a very quick note, but it comes up because of Tem. Like we were talking about with the uh, space TV crew that shows up to film the battle and broadcast it to all of Side Six. I did really find interesting the snippet of TV crew voiceover that we get. 
and then the commentary by Shar. So the TV crew voiceover says something like, you know, this is a real battle. It's happening right outside of our borders. Our country must carefully consider our next course of action, right? There is this feeling, at least from the TV crew, that neutrality is not a permanent solution and that at some point side six is going to have to do something as the battles get closer to the borders and presumably at some point cross over. And this doesn't actually happen, but we do do hear Kanskan say to his uh, soldiers, don't worry about violations. And then the other thing is Shar's commentary to Lala about the battle appearing on TV, that real battles are not so beautiful as they look on television. I would be curious to listen to that scene again because I don't I don't think the word he uses is beautiful, strictly speaking. Mm. I thought he said something about drama, like that the way battles are shown on TV looks like a drama, looks fake. Mm. See, I, I also heard drama, but I was wondering if that wasn't the bit that they translated as TV and he wasn't saying something like real battles are not as beautiful as like oh, dramatic a, recreations. A TV program. Yeah, exactly. That's why we might have to look at it again. So related to the voiceover that you mentioned, I actually think it's very interesting that we get the TV crew in there because this is our first glimpse of any kind of war journalism mm -hmm. in this world. Well, side six has been our first glimpse at a like functioning economy, at a you know functioning civil society where people are things other than just refugees or soldiers. And the voiceover that you mentioned, uh, my research for this episode is largely about neutral countries during World War II. Uh, However, that's a really broad topic and I cannot talk <laughs> about all of the interesting things I found out. But one sort of honorable mention for Sweden was that their press was pretty pro-allied side. And at one point, they had to go to the press and tell them to tone it down somewhat because it was damaging their ability to try to stay neutral. Mm. Uh, that if there was too much of a perception of favoring one side or the other, then regardless of stated neutrality, they were going to run into problems problems. Um, before we move on to anything else, I do want to come back to that scene with Shar and Amaro and Lala on the road where Amaro has gotten his little buggy stuck in a rut and uh, Shar provides some much needed roadside assistance by towing Amaro's uh, vehicle out of the rut, um, which is a funny scene. First of all, pretty sure those little buggies turn into hovercraft. So maybe Amaro didn't actually need help if he had just thought through the solutions to his problems that were available to him. And isn't that just a metaphor for Amaro all over right now. He's feeling all emotional from saying goodbye to his dad for real. Yeah, yeah. And of course, getting getting stuck like that immediately after going back to his dad after the interaction he had with his dad in the previous episode also feels very metaphorical. All of that aside, this is a lovely little scene because it shows Amaro so deeply, tremendously uncomfortable in Char's presence and Char much more confident. But then they both have that. They both say things in this scene that makes it sound like they kind of like there's a connection between the two of them. But Char doesn't know who Amaro is. Amaro knows who Char is. Char doesn't know who Amaro is. And Char mm. might not be nearly so comfortable if he knew who this kid was that he was helping out. <laughs> Maybe. Amaro finds out who Char is. He doesn't know at the beginning, but he's still uncomfortable. Well, and his, has... his uncomfort definitely uh, increases when he finds out that it's Char. And it must be Char Asnable, the red comet. Well, he, but he senses it, right? Mm -hmm. He senses, I know you. See, I think Char senses it too. Because... I think Char senses something. 
but he doesn't he doesn't have a name to tie to the Gundam. Mm-hmm. If Amuro had said, I'm the Gundam pilot. <laughs> yeah. But when Amuro says, I'm Amuro Ray, Char does say, huh, it feels like I've heard that name before, even though he definitely has not. Maybe Char is a bit of an esper too. I don't know. <laughs> well, our implication so far is that it's m- more common in space noids, right? Like we've had Sela have weird little moments. Mm-hmm. And Amuro. We thought, Lala, we thought maybe Haman Char. maybe. Mm-hmm. And we know that she had never been to Earth prior to going with Rambaral. Mm-hmm. There's a fan theory that uh, Crown, who is one of Char's wingmen and is one of the ones who dies during reentry to Earth, mm-hmm. that I guess some things he says or some things that Char says in that encounter make it sound a little bit like he might be one too. But that's, like I said, a fan theory. And obviously, it's dramatically useful to have that (laughs) in your main characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think they're meant to be indicative of the space noid population as a whole. Like, all the space noids are psychics. Uh, But I can't think of any Earth-based people who we've seen exhibit that. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's the case. Even a hint or a flash. Right. I will also say they played the most ominous music the show has available to them when Char was uh, like attaching his tow cable to Amuro's car. It no, was the most the, the it, most scary dramatic music was when Amuro was in space destroying all those Rickdoms by himself. That dramatic piano. They had pretty dramatic piano for Char attaching the rope. I guess I it was know. extremely ominous. It was like <laughs> Char is doing a terrifying thing. <laughs> He's walking slowly, holding a rope. <laughs> Do we have to talk about Cameron and Slager and Mirai? I don't want to. The other big emotional scene of this episode is on the bridge when Cameron arrives and offers to help the white base by using his own private ship to accompany them, at least until the edge of Side Six's airspace, uh, you know, essentially gambling that Xeon won't fire if it would risk hitting a Side Six vessel. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone else on the bridge politely ignores their escalating <laughs> argument. Uh, they are having a very personal discussion mm-hmm. uh, and cannot help but have an audience, but everyone sort of pointedly looks away or side eyes the discussion. It's like a New York City subway. Yeah, exactly. They would all they are they are all honorary New Yorkers. <laughs> this is a skill you learn. <laughs> yep. In People- a city this crowded, you will have a meltdown or a fight in public, and everyone is good enough to just pretend. And it's not happening. Unless things get dangerous and then probably someone will intervene. Yeah. But if it's just a verbal <laughs> thing, people will leave you be. Yep. Uh, the argument Mirai and Cameron are having here is Cameron has come along to make this offer about leading them out with, the, with his ship. And Mirai just sort of says, well, what are you trying to get out of this? Right. I can understand her uh, caution per mm-hmm. se. We've seen just based on comments by the generals and comments from Cameron that the society in which she used to move was very much predicated on favors and tit for tat. Mm-hmm. And You know, after the end of the last episode, Mirai could reasonably suspect that Cameron, uh, having seen the sort of life that Mirai is leading, has decided to prove himself to her Mm -hmm. and perhaps oblige her to Mm -hmm. him in some way by doing this big, scary, brave favor for her. And she's right. Cameron in this scene makes it very clear he is doing this because he wants to like do something for her and show her that he is, in fact, not the person that she thought he was. And when her back. Well, but like, but I do think there's a difference 
I think she worries he's trying to create an obligation. Mm. He picks up on that concern and is somewhat insulted by the implication. He wants to help her because he's in love with her, but was not thinking, oh, and then you'll owe me one, Mm -hmm. was not part of his plan. And then seemingly out of nowhere, (laughs) yeah, uh, Slegger uh, comes in again and slaps Mirai hard. Yeah. And there's a moment of shock over the whole bridge. This was deeply unexpected from everyone. Yeah. We get a bunch of cuts to people's faces looking shocked. No one approves. No one approves, but nobody does anything. Who could? Bright. Bright is still the commanding officer of the ship. Slager's the same rank as him, though. And we talked. He's pulled rank on Slager before, though. Right. In the past, when he has pulled rank on Slager, he's only done it once, and it was very polite, very much a, I'm reminding you that I'm in command and politely requesting that you follow my order. But also, we've seen in the Gundam Federation military that corporal punishment is not an uncommon thing. Bright has hit Kai and Amro. Ryu hit Kai. <laughs> Lots of people punching Kai. Um, And we've talked before in some of our research sections about how corporal punishment was really endemic in the Japanese Imperial Armed Forces during World War II. In a strictly technical sense, Slager may not have been in the wrong. However... So I did a bunch of uh, emotional unpacking with this scene because for a combination of reasons, good and bad, I found this much more upsetting than seeing Amuro get hit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, reasons for that that are okay. You know, Slugger is quite a bit larger than her and quite a bit older compared to the the other times we've seen violence in this way. It's been between people who there was less of a size difference. There was less of an age difference. There was less power difference fundamentally Mm -hmm. than there is in this scene. The scene is shot in such a way that we're clearly meant to find it shocking and upsetting, which is part of the reason why I think that it's that the show thinks it's different. I agree. Uh, because the times that we've seen young men get hit, when we're clearly not meant to find it upsetting. This we are. Mm-hmm. And that is when I say needing to emotionally unpack it, that's what I'm talking about because fundamentally, it's not more okay. It wouldn't be more okay for Slegger to do that to Amuro than it is for him to do it to Mirai. Mm-hmm. But because of social conditioning and because of you know the, the ways in which society thinks about masculinity, our gut reaction is often that it's okay <laughs> for men to experience violence in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, yeah, it was, that was a thing that I, I did not like having that reaction. Mm-hmm. I recognize it as unfair mm-hmm. and unhealthy. And that is the reaction the show wants you to have. I mean, Slager, as you said, the scene is drawn in a very shocking way. Slager is drawn in a very unflattering way. Slager oh. gets drawn a lot of different ways he's in the show. He's almost monstrous. Yeah, he's le- he's like leering and well, sneering. And the so before he opens his mouth, before he starts talking, I was like, okay, most generous interpretation of what's happening right now. Cameron is offering help that could seriously aid the white base, could save lives. And Mirai is refusing for personal reasons. She's willing to put them all in danger because she doesn't want to deal with this guy anymore. And that's selfish. Mm -hmm. But then Slugger opens his mouth and it becomes very clear that that's not his problem. His problem is that he thinks Cameron needs to quote unquote man up Mm -hmm. and lay down the law. And Cameron tells him that's barbaric. Yeah. Uh, 
And Slager insists is that, that this is how you show how determined you are. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is why this scene is so different, I think, for us, is because in the past when we've seen young men being hit, it's always been because they're being selfish and their selfishness is negatively impacting the crew. That's the motivation for the slap or the punch or whatever. You know, Amro doesn't want to go out in the Gundam, so Bright slaps him. And for the same reason, later on, Ryu hits him. Kai has abandoned the white base, so Ryu hits him, right? That's what's going on in those those interactions before. It's about bringing the person more in line with the, their duty for the, to the crew and their duty to their, their crewmates. And then, yeah, when, when Slager does that, that's what we assume is, is the case. And then it turns out it's this completely other thing. Well, and it, you know, in this scene, Slager represents another image of masculinity, which the show promptly rejects, right? Mm-hmm. That this idea of physical imposition and violence as a way to show that you're serious. Mm-hmm. And Slugger's made an enemy for life. I don't know if you see the the look Mirai gives him. Well, I wonder if this scene is not meant as a counterpoint to everything we saw in the last with Conscon and Bergamino and Cameron, where we talked about these inactive, weak, spineless men. And now we see they're polar opposite, but it's not a more appealing option at all. It's not like the show says, don't be like Cameron, be like Slugger. And if you just watched the previous episode, you might have come away from that episode with that feeling, especially given how much more sympathetic Slugger is in that episode. Mm -hmm. If we do look at them as these polar opposites, the piece that Slegger does not have, right? Because he's sitting there thinking, you know, what women want is a man of action. (laughs) Uh, For Mirai, it's not the forcefulness, it's the sense of purpose and a purpose that matters to you so much that you put yourself on the line. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's very affected by Cameron's uh, assistance. Yeah, she seems more sympathetic to him at the end than at any previous point. Well, and he he thinks to himself, and I found this very touching, you know, please get through this. He wants her to live. Mm -hmm. And some of that might be that he hopes they'll be brought together again once the war is over. Mm -hmm. But the sense we have is just that he cares for her and he wants her to survive. Yeah. Yeah, Cameron's weak, but he's not a bad dude. And Slager is strong, but maybe kind of a bad dude. Maybe kind of. I'm <laughs> underselling for effect. Yeah, Slager is not good. And and Cameron was starting to learn through his actions what it was that Mira was looking for. Whether he learned it in enough time, who knows? They're <laughs> well, also all teens. Like, yeah. what relationship is forever at that age, please? <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder how old Cameron is and how much older than Mirai he is. Well, he's already a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I think Japan, if we're going based off of a Japanese system, is one of those countries where you go to law school right away, mm-hmm. not where you do like an undergrad program and then do law school. But that still means like... Which like minimum, a, like 21, 22. Right. He'd, he'd, be in, he'd still only be in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. And as we know from talking to our consultant Shar, your brain, <laughs> the especially the frontal lobe of your brain, doesn't solidify, doesn't stop growing until your mid-20s. And that's the bit that handles things like inhibitions. <laughs> Self-control. <laughs> the little voice in the back of his head, or I guess front of his head in this case, that would have said, maybe don't go out in your tiny civilian undefended ship and try to be a smokescreen for the white base. I did think it was funny, though, that even while Cameron is making this whole show of... Uh, uh, like action and independence and being a you know courageous brave guy he still has somebody else fly the ship yeah <laughs> do was, you know how many people i paid to help me be heroic i was also amused by him uh contacting the white base to be like the enemy mobile suits <laughs> which have just flown directly by uh, the white base and bright bright so politely being like oh thanks for telling us 
<laughs> Roger you, that, Cameron. You you should go to safety now. <laughs> Seriously, you're in our way. It's when uh, Cameron is leaving the battlefield and he's drifting by and he looks out the white face window and Mirai looks over at him. There's a touching scene between the two of them and he waves and then she waves. But because she's a very small figure drawn very far away in that scene, it really looks like she's flipping him off. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think she's yeah, I think she's probably just like holding up a finger or two like as she's waving. Mm-hmm. Uh but it yeah, you could look at it and think she's just, <laughs> just like it off, Cameron. <laughs> um he does look a little desperate when he kind of like plasters himself against the window. Mirai. He doesn't just wave. He's like got Mirai. both hands pressed to the window and his face up close. And, yeah. 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 At least he's not in a spacesuit on the deck of the white base, right out front of the bridge, holding a boombox overhead. <laughs> One of the things that I've noted a few times in this series that I deeply appreciate is that we are not allowed to forget the tragedies that have occurred. Mm-hmm. When when a death happens, it has repercussions. It has meaning. It doesn't just exist in the episode in which it takes place. It continues to ripple through all future episodes. And you might have a couple of episodes where it doesn't come up and then it does. You no, know, like grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that in this episode with Hayato's reaction to Shars Zanzibar pulling into side six. Mm-hmm. Because Hayato basically start, starts to stalk off the bridge like he's going to go get a gun and go over to the Zanzibar and he's going to kill as many Zeons as he can. And since it's Hayato, we know that's going to be zero. But that's Aww. neither here nor there. No, I, I felt really sympathetic for Hayato in this episode, which was impressive given all the things I've said about Hayato so far in this podcast. But I got the feeling there. I think, you know, Hayato is usually very controlled. His emotions are on lockdown. He's very solid. And I got the feeling Hayato probably liked Ryu more than anyone else on the crew. I think Ryu was Hayato's best friend. I absolutely agree. Well, we see them training judo yeah, together. Yeah. And Before Ryu dies, they're always together. And, you know, that's background stuff because they're not the main characters. But the, it's it's there. It's there in the show if you're looking for it. And then in this episode, we it's a brief scene. It's understated. But yeah, Hayato has been mourning Ryu's loss more than anybody. And now... He's so close. Confronted with the enemy, he, and he wants can't do anything. He wants revenge. And Bright does the right thing and orders everyone to stay on the ship. <laughs> yeah. And Hayato is is audibly emotional in a way that he hasn't really been ever. What creates the weather inside six? It feels ridiculous to me. <laughs> Obviously, there's got to be like a person or a program that decides, okay, on Monday from 9 to 11 a.m., it's going to rain. Yep. Because it's not, there's no atmosphere. It's not <laughs> creating its own weather. Right. The, the weather is artificially controlled. So how is anybody surprised? How is Amuro like, well, ah, I got caught in the rain? How is Lala like, ooh, the rain has stopped? You know, Nina. Not everyone checks the weather report every day. I know you do, but some of us just accept what's going on outside. Maybe we like to have a little bit of wonder and mystery in our lives. In the real world, there's plenty of wonder and mystery with the regular weather report. It is so frequently wrong. Well, in space world where the weather is completely controlled, maybe they make the weather reports artificially wrong just to maintain a little bit of, you know, that that homey feeling. 
Oh, also, I don't know how we missed this earlier, but... There's just so much else happening in this episode. (laughs) So much. Lala is coded very Indian. Not even coded. I think that's pretty explicit. Yeah, okay. Lala is explicitly very Indian. She's got the brown skin. She's got the uh, bindi, the red dot on her forehead. And Nina was saying, I didn't recognize this, but that her outfit is also uh, a very typically Indian outfit. Well, not not exactly, but it does feel like sort of a futuristic extrapolation. It's a loose, tunicky kind of dress. It looks like a salwar kameez, but without the pants underneath it. And if you look at the, the shape of the neckline and the decoration on the neckline, that feels very reminiscent of uh, some pretty typical like embroidery decorations or dyed decorations on those kinds of clothes. Um, mostly worth pointing out because there are just not a lot of people of color <laughs> in mm-hmm. the show. Uh, we don't even have very many people who are East Asian who aren't mixed background. Right. Mirai and Hayato. Yeah. And almost all of the people of color that we have met, excluding Ryu Jose, have been spacenoids. I was going to say have been Zeons. Yeah. The the two black characters we've seen in the entire series were both Zeon. Mm-hmm. Although one of them was a double agent. I don't remember yeah, if he I was think, originally I think the Fetty or... I think the implication is that Judok was Zeon originally. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, and we've seen a couple of other Zeon pilots recently. In fact, in this episode, I think, who, although they're wearing the face masks that tint the, the color of their faces enough that you can't actually tell what color they are, they are drawn with what we think think of as sort of conventional, stereotypical anime black features. I think we also see a lot more characterization of, uh, we would need to do some more research on this, but sort of stereotypical anime, like hicks a little bit, mm-hmm. people from the Inaka, people from the countryside, uh, in a lot of the Xeon pilots. Yeah. Whereas the Federation, we get a very standard look, a very standard speech pattern. It feels more homogenous uh, and uh, less like there's less variety in the classes from which people in the Federation army come from. Yeah, the Federation feels a little more Anglosphere, Eurocentric. It feels global north, really. Whereas Xeon is coded really interestingly because on the one hand, you have the Xeon elites, you have the Zabis, you have McVeigh, you have these very aristocratic, mm-hmm. tall, thin, sallow. <laughs> yeah. And then the soldiers, for the most part, are coded very rural and brown. Brown and often have accents like the Black Tri-Stars that suggest a lower level of education. Right. And it does feel really stratified like that, mm-hmm. which may tell you something about Xeon society and the sorts of people who were forced into space. After the mobile suits, space colonies are the defining bit of science stuff in this science fiction series. And now that we've arrived in the intact space colonies of Side 6, it's high time for us to talk about them. We have by now encountered a single partially completed colony in Side 7, as well as the somewhat differently constructed colonies of Side 3. But it's Side 6 now that gives us our clearest look at one of these colonies, even including in one episode a helpful cutaway diagram and a voiceover about how they work. The colonies of Side 6, like the one in Side 7, are typical of the design of space colonies in First Gundam and its Universal Century sequels. It's also an extremely faithful rendering of an actual proposed design for permanent space colonies, developed by the physicist Gerard Kitchen O'Neill and called, appropriately enough, the O'Neill Cylinder. 
Now, this was absolutely cutting-edge speculative science back in 1979, as O'Neill had only just published the idea for these cylindrical colonies in the journal Physics Today back in 1974. Even then, it hadn't actually become widely known before his 1976 book, The High Frontier. Now, O'Neill was an incredible physicist, an inventor, and an advocate for space colonization. His philosophy and his work had a huge influence on the early Gundam shows, and we'll definitely be coming back to him in future episodes. He's seriously amazing, and so <laughs> much more than just the space colony design that bears his name and is perhaps his most famous work. So like I said, we're coming back to him. <laughs> An O'Neill cylinder is basically a massive tube. The design proposed by O'Neill was as large as 5 miles in diameter and 40 miles long. It's made up of two connected cylinders that are joined end to end, and they rotate in opposite directions. This opposite direction rotation makes the whole structure gyroscopically stable and prevents it from spinning off wildly. All the human habitation bits go on the inward surface of the cylinder's walls. Some segments of the cylinder wall are transparent, and they're connected to a system of adjustable mirrors that can be set to reflect sunlight into the colony and simulate daytime, or to reflect empty space to simulate night. The rotation of the cylinder and the inertia of the people and things inside, what we would colloquially call the centrifugal force, creates artificial pseudo-gravity for those inside that seems like it's pulling down towards the ground. This isn't real gravity, and it would seem to get weaker the further you get from the outer walls. So if you're in the longitudinal axis of the cylinder, you're effectively in a zero-gravity area. And that makes that a very useful spot to put things like hmm, spaceports. And yeah, that's where they put the spaceports in Gundam colonies. In fact, if you think back to the very first episode, the opening scene shows a Zeon Zaku team infiltrating the colony, and you can watch them progressively experiencing more gravity once they leave the central axis. Now, you can't just put these colonies anywhere in space, though. You need to find a stable orbit around Earth that will keep them from drifting away, crashing into each other, or deorbiting and crashing into Earth. <laughs> Lagrange points? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I have actually talked about these before, way back in episode 1.3, briefly. But now seems like a good time for a refresher. Now, Lagrange points are named for a 18th century French mathematician who gets most of the credit for finding them. As with everything in math and science, he didn't do all the work, <laughs> but he got almost all of the credit. Now, these are five points in the orbits around any two very large objects, where the combined influence of their two gravities creates stable orbital positions for a hypothetical, much smaller third object. Stable in this context, meaning that the third object keeps its position relative to the first two. So in Gundam terms, these are the points where the gravity from the Earth pulls one way, the gravity from the Moon pulls a different way, and even though the Earth, the Moon, and the colonies are all hurtling through space, they all stay in the same positions relative to each other. Gundam's sides are clusters of O'Neill cylinders built at Lagrange points. Because the Earth and Moon are both very large, the Lagrange points they create are large expanses of space with enough space for lots and lots of colony cylinders. So, for example, Side 7 and the asteroid base Luna 2 are both at the Lagrange point called L3, which is on the side of the Earth opposite the Moon. Xeon is in the complete opposite position behind the Moon, so Side 7 and Luna 2 are as far away from Xeon as anything in Earth's orbit can be, and that's probably why they hid the Gundam development program there. For side 6, things get a little trickier. Right now, it's located at L4, a Lagrange point that lies within the moon's orbital path but always stays 60 degrees ahead of the moon. This is a spot that is shared with side 2. 
And the opening narration for Kukuru's Doan's Island told us that side two has been destroyed, but we'll see if that sticks. In Zeta, the sequel to First Gundam... Spoilers! I know, but it's a minor one. Side <laughs> six is going to be located somewhere else. There's no explanation given for why that happened. There are some good theories, though, and we'll cover those when we get there. Is one of them just that they forgot? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to wait to discuss those later. For now, just remember that Side 6 is at the Lagrange point in the path of the moon, a bit ahead of it. But it shares that location with Side 2, and Side 2 may or may not have been destroyed. Zeon's space fortress Solomon and Side 1, or the ruins of Side 1, are over in L5, which is the other Lagrange point within the moon's orbital path, but it's 60 degrees behind the moon. Speaking of Luna 2 and Solomon, that brings us to how these colonies got built. And that brings us back to Gerard Kitchen O'Neill, because he didn't just dream up good ideas for space colonies. He wanted them built. He thought it could be done by 2005, and he had a plan for how to do it. The main problem with building even one of these giant cylinders is the massive amount of resources that are required. And these are resources that an already overburdened Earth is ill-equipped to provide. And the whole premise of these colonies is that the Earth is overburdened and we need to start living in space. And all of that is if we ignore the massive expense and logistical problem of shooting all of the construction material into space in the first place. <laughs> So, O'Neill came up with a solution that was both simple and brilliant. You just send a spacecraft to go grab some nice big asteroids, and then you move those into the same Lagrange points where you plan to build your colonies. All the material you need can be mined from the asteroids, refined in space, and then transported to the construction site without any gravity weighing you down. The Gundam creators very sensibly just copied that plan. <laughs> and so asteroids like Luna 2 and Xeon's Space Fortress Solomon over near Side 1 were brought into Earth's orbit to provide the raw materials necessary for colony construction. The Earth sphere in the Universal Century is just littered with these mining asteroids. There's never been anything like a comprehensive list or map of them, but we know there are at least two called Pezun and Palau near Side 6, and those are going to be relevant later, much later. <laughs> And really, anytime you see an asteroid in Gundam, you can just assume it started its life as a mining base. So now you've got all the parts you need to build your O'Neill cylinder. And you know just where you're going to put it. But how do you actually build the thing? Well, you're going to need some kind of space-worthy construction equipment. Construction is difficult and dangerous business, so it's going to need to be strong and sturdy. And because you're working on a massive scale, you're going to want this equipment to be big. It'll need to be able to maneuver in zero-g before you start spinning the cylinder, and then in gravity afterwards. So you'd better give it both thrusters and legs. Now, stick some multi-purpose manipulators on the end of some arms so that it can do the actual construction work, and bam, you've got the beginnings of a mobile suit. See? Everything's connected. As we discussed in the previous episode, the depiction of Side 6 gives us an impression of uh, rich cowards <laughs> <laughs> and of people content to maintain relationships with both sides of the war, despite what's known about atrocities Xeon has committed and their stated goals of, I never know how to put this, universe-wide, galaxy-wide dictatorship. <laughs> so it seems like a good time to talk about neutral powers in World War II. Uh, now, there were a large number of neutral nations in World War II, but I'm going to focus on just a couple who had economic dealings with both the Allies and the Axis powers, as they seem the most likely parallels for Side 6. 
One of the articles I read described neutral nations as composing their neutrality day after day. That what neutrality meant and what was required to maintain it was a constant balancing act. Another source described it in this way. Neutrals maintain their independence by offering economic concessions to the belligerents to make up for their relative military weakness. My education spent almost no time talking about <laughs> neutral <laughs> countries in World War II. Uh, one gets the impression of either countries that were too weak to participate or countries that for some moral reason chose not to participate in the war in either way. Or countries that had some sort of domestic strife going on that was so significant it prevented them from participating. Yeah. Uh, but the truth seems to be more complicated, unsurprisingly, and to focus mainly on the maintenance of a country's sovereignty. <laughs> this primary concern was maintaining political independence. This was very much the case in Ireland, I was interested to learn, because at the time, Ireland was still nominally part of the British Empire, but no longer in such a way that when England joined the war, they had to be on the English side. They were preparing for invasion from either side. They were seriously concerned that the war could be used by England as an excuse to invade Ireland and take it back. <laughs> <laughs> so while they did work with the Allies in a variety of ways, they really did not want <laughs> England back in Ireland. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was part of why they stayed neutral in the war. They were only a few decades removed from the uprising that had won them that degree of independence in the first place. So I'm sure there was a certain amount of wanting to, to assert their independence to the extent they were able to, and maybe even push that boundary a little bit. Switzerland wanted to keep the Germans out, but did not have enough of an army to stop them. Uh, the Swiss banking community has never fully accounted for their dealings with the Nazis in terms of gold, art, etc., a lot of which was stolen from Holocaust victims. Uh, Portugal had their own fascist dictatorship, they, but they didn't want to antagonize England because they had African colonies and they were concerned about what England would do to those colonies. Um, they did, however, sell necessary supplies and materials to the Nazis and support the German war effort. Sweden was dependent on German coal, but Germany was dependent on Swedish iron ore, and they also sold a lot of necessary supplies and materials to the Nazis um, and allowed German troops to travel through Sweden to Norway for the invasion of Norway. You know, these are all countries that provided materials necessary to the war effort, none of which were really scrutinizing where the money they received came from. Uh, all of this, of course, had been widely known for a long time, but wasn't really scrutinized. It didn't really enter that sort of window of unacceptability until the late 90s. Um, Post-war politics meant there was just no appetite for looking at those war records. The thinking during the Cold War tended toward black and white, good and bad. Mm -hmm. Sweden and Switzerland were democracies. <laughs> <laughs> So nobody in the, the West, so to speak, <laughs> wanted to talk about bad things either country had done during the war. The USA tried to get Portugal to surrender 44 tons of German gold by freezing their US assets, uh, but wound up dropping it in exchange for Portugal joining NATO and a US base in the Azores Islands. In the case of Switzerland, they accepted some Jewish refugees, but not others. The banks did business with Germany and Italy. They bought food and other supplies from both. Late in the war, a lot of Allied intelligence was based there. Uh, a Swiss town near the border was manufacturing military parts and munitions for Germany, uh, which we found out because we accidentally bombed it, thinking it was a German town. Oops. Uh, after their rail link to Vichy France was severed in 1942, Switzerland was completely surrounded by the Axis powers. And Switzerland was dependent on imports for more than half of its food and basically all of its fuel. 
Swiss trade accounted for 0.5% of the German wartime economy, and an independent commission that happened in the 90s and early 2000s basically determined that Swiss activities did not extend the war. As I stated earlier, Sweden allowed the German army to move through their territory, including using their trains. At the same time, they were constantly passing intelligence to the Allies and helped train refugee soldiers from Norway and Denmark. In one of the cooler stories (laughs) related to this, when the Nazis ordered Denmark's Jewish population moved to concentration camps, an unprecedented rescue effort began. Almost the entirety of Denmark's Jewish population, which was not that many people, it was like eight and a half thousand people, but all of almost all (laughs) of them were ferried from Denmark to the Swedish mainland across heavily patrolled waters. And once there, they all received asylum. The softer border situation that Sweden had, because they were neutral, allowed a lot more refugees from nearby countries to get there, uh, and for sw- uh, allowed many more Swedish people to support nearby resistance efforts, especially in Poland. We don't have a lot of information about Side 6. We know it's established, we've seen it, it's clearly fully constructed and has been for some time. You know, it doesn't feel like the frontier. Mm-hmm. They've got cities, they've got countryside. But what was their political status? Were they part of the Federation? Did they want not to be? (laughs) Was this an opportune moment for them to separate themselves and become independent? Those are the sort of things I find myself thinking about here. So I have some lore. Okay. (laughs) Um, I have some deep lore on side six that you might find interesting. And I don't know when this was established for certain. It doesn't really seem to come up in the show. Um, But side six has been autonomous for a little while. Okay. Side six, like Xeon, like side three, had a homegrown independence autonomy movement and peacefully achieved some degree of autonomy from the Federation prior to the war. How interesting. Yes, very interesting. And then um, once the war started, they weren't really part of the Federation because they had you know, mm-hmm. become autonomous. Um, and side four, which is right next to side six, was one of or the first side to be attacked by Xeon. Mm. And so side six being already independent and having seen their next door neighbor get either destroyed or conquered, depending on how you interpret Mm -hmm. that uh, map at the beginning of (laughs) Kukuru's Doan's island that says it was destroyed and draws a big red X over it. um, One can imagine why, like Switzerland or Sweden, they would uh, feel that their only route to preserving their independence, their political sovereignty, Mm -hmm. was neutrality. That was a point that came up in the case of Sweden in particular. Uh, In Sweden, in the immediate post-war, there was still some bad blood uh, because of the sales of iron. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was this sense that you could have ground the German war machine to a halt if you had just refused to sell them iron ore. Um, People were... However, Sweden also looked around Europe and at the point at which they had to make a decision, the Allies had not successfully been able to prevent the fall of, you know, Poland or of France mm-hmm. or like <laughs> Yeah. Uh there was a sense of, well, you can't protect us. You you might try. Mm-hmm. When you say that you will, we we believe that you'll try. Mm-hmm. We do not believe you will be successful. Well, and in Gundamverse, Xeon did in fact launch a let's call it lightning assault to open the war, which 
saw them basically catch the Federation military completely unprepared. When Side 6 made the decision to become neutral, there was basically no indication that the Federation was going to last even a month, certainly not the eight months of stalemate that they managed to squeak out. And now the Federation's counteroffensive would seem to be coming completely out of nowhere. I haven't really discussed the United States' early position in the war because we've tended to think of the Federation as the United States proxy and they're already involved. Mm -hmm. um, if later in the story, side six picks a side for some reason, <laughs> that makes them a more compelling possible United States analog, at least in terms of the hmm. starting neutrality, making it changing their mind later. Interesting. And if, if that happens, maybe I'll talk a bit more about the United States. Uh, I highly recommend doing a little reading of your own about various countries and their neutrality during the war. It's really interesting. Yeah, practically every neutral country, well, probably every neutral country has a really interesting story for why it was neutral. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff that is not necessarily relevant to this episode, but is well worth reading about. We're on theme for these episodes with their focus on reunions and re-examinations of old relationships, because both of my research topics are revisiting previous episodes. This one takes us back to episode 1.20, The Fate of a Soldier, when I told you the story of the Royal Navy's last proper boarding action, when a Navy cruiser violated the neutrality of Swedish territorial waters to rescue hundreds of allied merchant sailors from the German prison ship Altmark. You might remember that the prelude to that dramatic boarding action was the even more dramatic Battle of the River Plate, when three badly outgunned British cruisers were able to force the German battleship Graf Spee to take temporary refuge within the neutral port of Montevideo. Last time I focused on the naval battle and its aftermath, but this time I'm going to talk about how the Allies used a combination of diplomatic pressure, espionage, deception, and some clever exploitation of the rules governing neutral ports to make the German crew of the Graf Spee sink their own battleship and surrender themselves, rather than try to escape past the badly damaged and totally outmatched British squadron waiting for them just outside the neutral waters around the port. The Graf Spee was a pocket battleship, a very modern class of ship developed by the German Navy during their secret rearmament after World War I. It was significantly heavier, and therefore more powerful, than the Treaty of Versailles allowed, but Germany just lied and said that it wasn't, and this was the era of just sort of going with it. The Graf Spee was dispatched into the South Atlantic before the war started, so that it would be right in the midst of Allied shipping and free to raid to its heart's content. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as war was declared, the Graf Spee started sinking Allied merchant vessels. Now the effect of a surface raider like this is not measured by the ships it sinks, but by the way it distorts enemy shipping and naval deployments. Merchant ships are intimidated into sailing different routes, or not sailing at all, and a single raider can draw many more warships away from other, more vital theaters of the war. In this case, it took two battleships, four aircraft carriers, a battle cruiser, and 16 cruisers more than two months to hunt down the lone <laughs> Graf Spee. It's a lot of ocean. Yeah, and I guess you could say that it was kind of a decoy at sea. Of the eight hunter-killer squadrons sent to find the Graf Spee, it ended up being the weakest of these, a squadron of just four cruisers that ended up finding it. And it was actually just three cruisers that found the battleship because the strongest in the squadron, the HMS Cumberland, was undergoing a badly needed refit in the nearby Falkland Islands. Now, 
I can't say for sure that the battle in Breakthrough, where the exhausted white base engaged three enemy light cruisers, while a fourth heavy cruiser delayed by the need for repairs raced to join the fight, was inspired by the Battle of the River Plate, where the exhausted crew of the Graf Spee engaged three enemy light cruisers, while a fourth heavy cruiser delayed by the need for repairs raced to join the fight. It's probably just a coincidence that afterwards the damaged Graf Spee sought refuge and repairs inside a nearby neutral port. I'm sure there won't be any more parallels. Oh, also, the cruisers had a shorter range than the Graf Spee, and so they had to endure the battleship's long-range attacks until they could get close enough to return fire, just like what Char does in Decoy in Space. But okay, now I'm positive there are not going to be any more parallels. Anyway, while the badly damaged warship was docked in the neutral port, they tried to get repairs but were denied them because the laws governing neutral nations in war forbid aiding the war effort of either side by refitting warships. Also, according to those same rules, they were only allowed to remain in port for a limited amount of time, 72 hours. And all the while, there was an enemy cruiser squadron waiting to attack as soon as they left their sanctuary. Here's where the two stories diverge. None of the local government officers in Montevideo dealing with this situation were hoping to marry the Graf Spee's pilot. <laughs> the local Uruguayan government was decidedly more sympathetic to the Allied cause and would later break neutrality to declare war on Germany and Japan. Publicly, the Uruguayan government and British diplomats in Montevideo pressured the Graf Spee's captain to leave port immediately. But privately, they played a different game. You see, the British had dispatched a massive fleet of ships to finish off the Graf Spee should it leave Montevideo. But that fleet was far, far away. All they had at hand were the four cruisers, and two of those were barely floating after the prior battle. If the Graf Spee did leave port, the waiting cruisers might not be able to stop it. So instead, the British and French governments arranged for merchant vessels docked in Montevideo to leave port at 24-hour intervals. Because, and I think this is brilliant, under Article 16 of the Hague Convention concerning the rights and duties of neutral powers in naval war, a warship may not leave a neutral port within 24 hours after the departure of any merchant vessel flying its enemy's flag. They also had the cruisers waiting outside port create excessive smoke to make their force seem larger. And you can listen to episode 1.21 where I researched the military use of smoke. And they broadcast messages on encrypted channels that they knew the Germans had cracked to make it seem like a much more powerful force was already on the verge of arriving. So trapped between the Hague Convention saying that they needed to stay and a different article of the same convention saying they needed to go, as well as the Montevideans threatening to intern the lot of them, which is what a neutral country gets to do to you if you overstay your Hague Convention welcome. <laughs> And orders from home telling them absolutely not to let Uruguay seize the ship because it would almost certainly go straight to Allied intelligence, the captain of the Graf Spee ordered his crew to scuttle the ship and then surrender. Once he had seen the work done, the captain went to his hotel room, put on his full dress uniform, spread his ship's battle flag on the bed, lay down on it, and shot himself in the head. Holy. <sighs> I'm pretty glad that Gundam didn't go that way. I like Bright. The fact that the tape used on side six to cover ship's weapons is red, literal red tape, made me wonder where the phrase red tape comes from and what its equivalent is in Japanese. I found conflicting sources on the exact origin of the term. One says England, the other Spain, but both cite it coming from the 16th century. I found the source that lists Spain as the origin a little more convincing. The administration of Charles V, King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, started binding their most important government documents, those that needed to be discussed as soon as possible by the Council of State, with red ribbon. 
less urgent administrative documents were bound with plain string. The practice spread from there, with surviving documents and paintings from that era depicting the red ribbon binding. Red tape didn't come up as a derogatory term until the 18th century, when it became associated with the difficulties <laughs> of accessing government records or dealing with bothersome government paperwork. Mm. While the Japanese language has adopted red tape as a phrase, redotepu, <laughs> there are several Japanese phrases that have similar connotations, just none associated with red tape or ribbon. It's basically just like bureaucracy. <laughs> Next time on episode 1.29, Monsters. Amaro's just different. My suit is too big. Balls. That guy. The tiniest Zabi. Women and children first. Deadly shinies. Hayato knows he's a Hayato. More magnets. Going down with the ship. Seizure time. And Nina becomes too angry to function. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Hayato is the glue that holds the white base together on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from our patron, Zach S., who now holds the record for two consecutive wrong Gundam opinions. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. But it's still Monday morning. Oh, I, I assume they actually you... take weekends off. Oh, I sent it on Friday. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, but it feels like you emailed a long time ago. I know. That's only because we don't have weekends here at Mobile Suit Breakdown Studios. We just work every day. <laughs> we just work all the time. And we love it. <laughs>